0: So it's Acts chapter 8, I think it's verses 1 to 5, but we're going to actually back up just a little bit to get some context. It's talking about the stoning of Stephen, and here's what it says, starting in verse 58 of chapter 7. When they, meaning the council, had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called out to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the churches, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women... He would put them into prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Many of you are familiar with Rush Limbaugh, the conservative radio talk show host, whose program was listened to by millions of Americans until his death back in 2021. But not so many know of his younger brother, David. David Limbaugh is a lawyer, a political commentator, and like his older brother, a radio programmer or radio talk show host. And he's also the author of a number of books, including one entitled Persecution How Liberals Are Waging War Against Christianity. Limbaugh, who himself is a Christian, in the book traces the shift over time in America from a nation that was greatly influenced and supportive of Christianity to one that's increasingly hostile towards and intolerant of the faith, especially when it comes to public displays of the faith. He opens the first chapter of the book by citing a case that took place back in 1995 where Samuel B. Kent, a U.S. district uh, judge from uh, Texas, he uh, in the case which was related to a high school graduation ceremony, the judge ruled that any student who mentioned the name of Jesus in the speech would be arrested and jailed for six months. In the ruling, he actually said this, quote, And make no mistake, the court is going to have a United States marshal in attendance at the graduation. If any student offends this court, that student will be summarily arrested and face up to six months incarceration in the Galveston County Jail for contempt of court. Anyone who thinks I'm kidding about this order better think again. Anyone who violates this order, no kidding, is going to wish that he or she had died as a child when this court gets through with him. He went on to say, the judge did, the prayer must not be uh, referred to any specific deity by name, whether it's Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad the great god Sheba, or anyone else? Now, the judge showed his ignorance in that last statement. Buddha is not considered a god by Buddhists. He's considered an enlightened figure. And uh, the god that the Muslims worship is called Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. And there is no god named Shiva. The Hindu deity is Shiva with a V. But I doubt he was all too concerned that those names would be mentioned because most of those cases which are brought by the ACLU Almost all of them relate to references to Jesus. Now throughout his book, Limbaugh gives examples of antipathy that Christians face in the courts, in the schools, and from the media, which is slanted to the left side of the political spectrum. Indeed, as I read the book reviews on Amazon, many wrote, that, wrote him off as a right-wing bigot who's simply whining that, uh, about the fact that Americans no longer dominate the culture. One reviewer said this, Anytime you do not follow lockstep with these so-called Christians who spew nothing but racial hatred and homophobic bile, then you're trying to wipe out Christianity. Oh, please. Yeah, these Christians sure have it rough, don't they? Hate to break it to you, Mr. Limbaugh, but Jesus was a liberal too. Oh, Lord, save us from your followers. Or another who left these statements. I think the problem for a certain type of Christian, and we've all encountered them, is that People are less, a lot less tolerant of being bullied and harangued and harassed and hassled and put upon by these uh, uh, in-your-face religious loons who know far better than you and, in fact, what's best about you. I have no patience with them or anything that they're selling, but that doesn't mean I'm anti-Christian. Yet another wrote this. Maybe we should show a little more gratitude for our relative freedom and comfort. Perhaps we should show more concern for believers in other parts of the world who know what real suffering is David Limbaugh's book is crippled by a pathetically uh, myopic perspective. It insults the millions of Christians who sacrifice so much more than we American Christians ever will, including their own lives. No way can we compare the petty little inconveniences to the suffering that they endured. No way do we have the right to use the word persecution to describe our own experiences. I think that reviewer makes a valid point. I mean, Christians in China and Pakistan and Iran would love to have the religious freedoms that we do in America today. Now, if I had written the book, I don't think I would have called it persecution. I think I would have titled it The Rising Tide, The Growing Hostility Towards Christians in America. David Limbaugh wrote his book in 2003. If he were to update it today, he could certainly have added examples of government hostility towards Christians, especially when it comes to biblical sexual morality. Cake bakers, and wedding wedding, um, photographers being fined and uh, driven out of business for refusing to celebrate homosexuality. Churches were fined and pastors in Canada were jailed for keeping their churches open during the COVID lockdown. Physical violence and death are just the far end of the continuum of persecution, but all hostility and harassment of Christians that they receive because of their faith is a form of persecution. Now, last week we looked at the martyrdom of Stephen who was the first man to die for his faith, the Christian faith. This week, we want to think about the persecution that followed and the one who was leading that persecution and what God was trying to accomplish in it. So why don't we pray and give God his opportunity to teach us. Our Father and God, we do pray and ask that you would encourage us to stand firm in our witness for Christ as we look at this portion of your word this morning. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three things that we want to consider this morning. First of all, the reality of persecution the reality of persecution. Secondly, Saul as the chief persecutor. And finally, God's purpose in persecution. Now, the Collins Dictionary defines persecution as cruel and unfair treatment of a group or person, especially because of their religious, political beliefs or their race. The Jews were persecuted by the Nazis for the race. The Armenians were slaughtered by the Turks for their religion. When Hitler was asked by some of his Generals, how the world would react to the attempted genocide of the Jews, he responded by saying, who remembers the Armenians? Well, what should we say about the persecution that comes to Christians because of our faith? I think the first thing we need to say is that it should be expected. It should be expected. After Paul preached to the Thessalonians, a number of the people got saved, but some Jews in the city, were told, became jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the market, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. And they were seeking to bring them out to the people, Acts 17, 5. Well, they thought it best for Paul to leave the city, but he was so concerned about those who were left behind and how they were faring in their faith. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5, Paul wrote back to them saying this, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, in the gospel to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that you would not be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves, listen to this, you yourselves know that we've been destined for these things. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, even as you know. Now, Especially for new Christians, who are so excited about what God has done in their life and forgiving their sins and giving them a new heart, they just have to tell everybody, but they're often surprised by the negative reaction they receive. I mean, their parents don't pat them on the head and say, well, that's nice, dear. Instead, they accuse them of being brainwashed, hoodwinked, deceived, bringing division and shame to the family. I know of one girl who, when she converted to Christ, her Orthodox Jewish family, held a funeral for her in her eyes, their eyes. She was better off dead. Well, rather than being shocked and overwhelmed by the experience of rejection, Peter encouraged his readers in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 19, he said this, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though it were some strange thing happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins first with us, what will be the outcome of those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God should entrust their souls to the faithful creator, in doing what's right. I mean just a short time after Peter wrote these words, Nero was sending Christians to the lions and lighting his courtyard with their oil-soaked bodies. Paul told us it's been granted to us for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He told Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But why? I mean, why would living a quiet life just trying to please God bring hatred and hostility from the world? Look, people love their sins. And if you don't approve of their sinful choices and lifestyle, they rightly sense that you're condemning them, even if you don't say anything. The fact that you won't clap and cheer when two men kiss reminds them of a truth they know deep in their heart, that those who practice these things are worthy of death. We just want to be left alone. Okay, if that's true, why does everybody have pride flags? Why are we expected to wear t-shirts that say, love is love? You know, Bachman, Turner, Overdrive <laughs> said that any love is a good love. But they were wrong. God is the one who defines love. God is the one who defines good. God is the one who defines evil. Romans twelve nine says, hate what's evil, cling to what's good. Unbelievers despise us because they cling to what is evil and hate what's good that's why they hate Christ. In John 7, 7, Jesus told his unbelieving brothers, he said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. Jesus told his followers, he said, you're the light of the world. He also told them this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. But men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John three nineteen to 20. Second thing we have to say is that it comes from our identification with Christ. Jesus put it this way. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world for this reason, the world hates you. Remember the words that I spoke to you? Slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep your word also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they've both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they've done this to fulfill the word which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. John 15, 18 to 25. Third thing I think we need to say is that sometimes great persecutions are set off by a single event. The riots in the United States back in 1991 came after Rodney King was beaten by police. The riots and lootings and the fiery but mostly peaceful protests over the last couple years were set off by the death of George Floyd. The Arab uprising brought down a number of governments in the Middle East and North Africa. The spark was a literal one. In December of 2010, a Tunisian man who was a street vendor, a man named Mohamed Bouzizi, uh, set himself on fire Set himself on fire to protest an arbitrary seizing of his vegetable stand by police over failure to obtain a permit. Now, in our story today, the execution of Stephen was the spark that flamed it into a full persecution. Look what it says. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region... In Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Now, there there must have been a growing, simmering hostility below the surface for it to break out suddenly like this. In our country, you you can kind of hear the rumblings on the mountain, the noxious fumes starting to come off the top of the volcano. But when exactly it will erupt and spew the lava flow of persecution on us? We don't know. Only God knows. The world is at war against God, and the world sees Christians as enemy combatants. That brings us to our second point. Paul is the chief persecutor. Now, the Jews have had their arch villains who tried to do them in over the centuries. Think about Haman in the book of Esther. Uh, He wanted to wipe out the Jews because one Jew named Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Antiochus Epiphany, the Seleucid king, desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and then putting up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He tried to destroy the Jews and to stamp out their religion. Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews, but his chief henchman in the process was a man named Heinrich Himmler, who was a chicken farmer turned executioner. Now here the persecution was being done by Jews to other Jews, Christian Jews, headed up by a zealous young man named Saul, who we would know later as the Apostle Paul. Now we're told in verse 1 that when Stephen was taken out and stoned, Saul was in hearty agreement with him, putting him to death. Now, I imagine him looking like the Italian dictator Mussolini with his arms folded, his jaw jutting, and nodding his head in approval. Or perhaps he was like a a basketball coach who at the end of the game, as the buzzer sounds, sees the ball go right through the net for the win. Yes! Yes! Paul was saying. What was his background? Who was this Saul, the persecutor of the church? Well, according to what we read in the book of Acts, he was born in a city called... Uh, Tarsus in Cilicia, modern day southern Turkey, which was a major city in the Roman Empire. Along with Alexandria and Athens, it was one of the learning centers of the day. And because uh, they had backed Octavian in the civil war in Rome, when he became Caesar Augustus, he declared them a free city. So Paul, like his father before him, was actually a Roman citizen. As to his religious training, he was mentored in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, the most respected rabbi of the day. Given his religious credentials in Philippians 3, 5 to 6, he mentions this. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. In Galatians 1, 13 to 14, he tells his readers, For you heard of me, my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. You ever heard that phrase, a nominal Christian? That means one who's just a Christian in name. Well, Paul was not a nominal Jew. He was to Judaism what Osama bin Laden is to Islam. One who's willing not only to die for his faith, but also to kill for it. Well, this blasphemous, dangerous movement of Jesus' followers needed to be stomped out, and Paul was the one who had the heavy boots to do it. And so we read, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Samaria, except the apostles. Now, Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging them off, men and women, putting them in prison. Now that brings us to the last thing we have to say about Paul is his hatred for the Christians. The Greek word translated ravaging here is one used of an animal tearing apart its prey. Think of a pit bull with a kitten in its mouth shaking it violently back and forth. Or, Or a pride of lions who've taken down a zebra who are tearing in and ripping up its flesh with their sharp claws. Later after he was converted, this same Saul defended himself before a crowd of Jews in Jerusalem. He said this. He said, I'm a Jew born in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the laws of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. I persecuted this way to death, binding and putting both men and women into prison, as also the high priests and the council of elders can testify. From them, I have received letters from brethren, to the brethren, and started off to Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Imagine it, midnight knock, sudden kicking into the door, bursting in with torches, children scream, the parents scramble, Saul drags them out of the house by their hair, you idolatrous Nazarenes, worshiping a mere man as God, now you'll know the wrath of God by my hand. Didn't Jesus tell them? They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, a time's coming when anyone who kills you will think they're doing God a favor. They will do such things because they have not known me or my father. I mean, when the hijackers flew their planes into the Twin Towers and shouted, Allah Akbar. They didn't think they were doing something wrong. They thought they were doing something quite right. They were striking at the great Satan, America. When the churches were burning Protestants at the stake, they were acting in good conscience as they saw it. Last thing we have to say about Paul, though, is he had an amazing conversion. Now, we're going to read about that in the weeks to come, but even at this point, let's hear Paul celebrate this amazing grace that God extended to him. In First Timothy 1, 12-17, he says this, I thank God, our Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful in putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and, a, prosecutor and a, a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, which is more than abundant with the faith and the love which is found in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy... So that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. You know, when the Christians heard that Paul had been converted, they, they didn't believe it. Writing to the Colossians, Paul said this, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond all my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for our ancestral traditions. But when, the God, but when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased, he, uh, he revealed his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Galatians 1, 13 to 15. Here's what I'm telling you. You should never despair and think, there's no way my husband could get saved. My dad is too far gone. My mom is just too hard if the chief prosecutor and persecutor of the church could be saved, then they can as well. That brings us to our last point, though, God's purpose in the persecution. I mean, God could stop all persecution if he wanted to. He could send a band of angels to wipe out the Christians' enemies. Why doesn't he? Well, in it, he's accomplishing things in our lives and in the church. I'll give you a number of these things, one from this text and then from other places in the Scripture. The first thing it does is it aids in the spread of the gospel. Persecution aids in the spread of the gospel. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. By, by trying to stamp out the flame of the gospel, they simply sent the embers into the air and the Spirit blew them wherever he willed to start new fires across the region, one of them being Samaria. I mean, hadn't Jesus told them, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. By the way, when he's talking about the uttermost parts of the earth, he has Grantsburg, Wisconsin in mind. Well, God uses war, political upheavals, tragedies, and heartaches to spread the gospel and bring people into Christ's kingdom. Man may mean it for evil, but God means it for good. You can trust him to bring good out of the hardships that you endure, including persecutions. Second thing we have to say though is it inspires others to be more bold. Paul was in Prisoned for preaching Christ, but it brought unexpected benefits. Writing to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, he says this, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, meaning being imprisoned, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that in my imprisonment, the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. See, Paul was chained to a Praetorian soldier, and every two hours they would switch him out, which means he had a captive audience to witness to. And he says, and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the, listen, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word without fear. Now, you would think that Paul being arrested would restrict his witnessing opportunities and cause others to become more timid, but it didn't work that way. It worked just the opposite. How do you explain that? Well, I think it's explained by the words of Janice Joplin in her song when she said, freedom's just another name for nothing left to lose. You see, when you've lost everything, then what can they take from you? was a pastor. Actually, it wasn't even a pastor. He was a, he was a former male prostitute, I believe in uh, Toronto. And after he got saved, he not only went out and did street witnessing, but he would speak against uh, homosexuality. I remember seeing a, a CBD, uh, CBC program, a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation program, where they had liberals and conservatives discussing this guy. And the one thing that both sides agreed on was this was a hateful, terrible man. The only question is what should be done with him. But later on, he himself was interviewed. And he said, look, I lost my house over this. He said, I lost my freedom. They put me in prison. He said, I've been there three years. He said, what else are they going to take from me? Freedom's just another name for nothing left to lose. See, our problem is we're so worried, what will we do if they take our house? I take my kids. Take my car. Take my freedom. Book of Hebrews 10, 34 Writing to him, the author said this, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession, a lasting one. The next thing that persecution does, though, is it shows the genuineness of our faith. Again, Peter writing to a suffering church who is protected by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in these last times. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, You've been distressed by various trials, listen to this, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Coming out of that, persecution also refines us as believers. Speaking of the believers who will suffer persecution by the Antichrist in the end times, the angel told Daniel this in 12.10, he said, Many will be purged and purified and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand it. But those who have insight will understand. Richard Wormbrand, the Romanian pastor that I mentioned last week in my sermon, he spent a number of years in prison for his faith. Speaking of the refining effect that suffering has for the Christian, he says this, it, may be, it must be understood there are no nominal half-hearted Christians in Russia or China. The price of that Christians pay is far too great. The next point to remember is that persecution has always produced better Christians. A witnessing Christian, a soul-winning Christian, communist persecution has backfired and produced serious, dedicated Christians such as are rarely seen in free lands. Here's another thing that persecution does. It weeds out the unbelievers, the hypocrites. In the parable of the soil, Jesus said the seed that fell on the shallow soil represents the person who when they hear the word, receive it immediately with joy. But they have no firm root in them, but they're only temporary. And when afflictions and persecutions arise because of the word, immediately they fall away. So yes, persecution, whether it's severe or mild, will come to the Christian. Yes, there are powerful enemies of the church. But whatever and whenever persecution comes, the Holy Spirit will be working to spread the gospel, refine Christ's followers, and purify his church. So in confidence, we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can mere man do to me? Now granted, he can torture you, and he can kill you. But if he kills you, what has he done? Ended your pain and sent you off to be with Jesus, with a victor's crown. Now, one of the things I've been talking about in my Bible studies recently is we need to start to develop a theology of suffering because it's coming to this country. And it is not a long way off. Now is the time to build those disciplines in your life that will carry you through in the day of testing. We have freedom now. We don't know if we'll have freedom tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today we need to take the Lord seriously. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I- I thank you for people who have gone before. I thank you for Stephen, who laid down his life. First, a martyr of the church, but not the last one. There's going to be many more to come in the end times. And we may even possibly be among them. But whether we are or not, Lord, we're still called to bear witness to the truth, to uh, take the slings and arrows that the world sends us, and the insults and the reproach, and do so gladly, knowing that that was done to our Lord as well. So, Father, we pray for a blessing for each one here. I pray that you'd work in the hearts of those who don't know you, that you'd call them soon, that they can join the winning side. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, that you would strengthen us and prepare us for the days that are probably coming upon us in the very near future. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name, and for his sake, amen.